This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Welcome to the Curious Coaches Club. Um, You are most welcome here today to our Monday session. I'm delighted to be joined today by some very special guests to help us explore the pillars of the duty to care with the, the people that we work with. And these elements, safeguarding, um, well-being, mental health, they are on the minds of coaches of all levels. Um, a reminder of this and something that has brought D2C, Jewish to Care, to the forefront is a, the harrowing documentary um, of Athlete A. For those of you who didn't get a chance to watch it, the Netflix documentaries focused on people who survived um, USA Gymnastics, Dr. Larry Nassar's abuse in an acceptance of toxic culture. And we'll unpick that um, in some detail today. Uh, here at UK Coaching, we're, we're very much aware of the crucial role in our community that coaches play, and therefore society. Um, they are a fundamental piece in building a healthier and happier community, a phrase that we often use inside UK Coaching. And it will be key as we return uh, to play in this phased approach after COVID or during COVID, um, that we ensure coaches are well equipped to deliver these sessions um, with the participants' well-being at the heart. And as um, I've had a run through with some of our guests last week and some of the stories and um, interesting areas that they've already encountered in this return to faith plays, very interesting. So we will explore and aim to support you coaches, um, employers and deployers in this space. Um, we're definitely here to work with coaches um, and, to, and the employers and deployers to help them put the right training policies and systems in place. And again, something today that we look at, what are those policies, what are those systems um, to minimise that risk of abuse? As we know, nothing is more important than the protection of children and young people in society as a whole. It is simply the most important duty for any of us who are involved in sport and in physical activity. And that should be a golden thread, not a bolt-on, not an add-on, um, as, as years ago, possibly in some areas and aspects of sport and coaching, that we may have, have picked it up as something we need to add on. But it's something that has a golden thread that should run through every aspect of your coaching as you strive to meet people's physical, social, emotional and psychological needs. And that's a, that's a big responsibility. And we recognise that at UK Coaching and want to continue to support you. So without further ado, uh, the experts and passion that's going to ooze from the next 60 minutes is going to blow you away. <laughs> we, um, uh, I encourage you to uh, immerse yourself in this. And if it is a pen and paper that you need to hand, then absolutely do. But we will be signposting and, and summarising a lot of the points near the end of the session. So um, I won't do it as, as much justice. I, I know I won't in the introductions, but I know it's a hard question. I'll give a brief skim and then I'll go to our guests to introduce with an angle of passion that they have and the roles they play. So Carl, um, Carl Billington Wood, Senior Consultant at the uh, CPSU, the Children Protection and Sport Unit, recipients of the UNICEF Safeguarding and Sport Award. 2016. Carl is definitely going to bring a depth and wealth of experience to our session today. Um, Kevin Murphy, safeguarding lead in uh, the National Working Group for uh, Area Sport and Specific as that lead. Um, again, of the chats we had last week, absolutely fantastic charitable organisation, over 14,500 practitioners uh, trying to spread the good word and support coaches and athletes. 
And Dave Turner, I've had the privilege of, of working alongside Dave and he's a massive advocate um, for children, uh, child protection and safeguarding. But above that, and very humbly, an Olympic coach <laughs> and a lead throws coach at Loughborough University. So he's going to bring today that coaching angle and talk about some of those policies and systems in place and uh, look at all those boundaries that we, we look to adhere to. So... Without further ado, and I'll have my air, Carl, would you mind starting us off and just giving us a little bit of a snapshot on what the, the documentary even brought to the surface for you in the role that you play? Yep, sure. Um, well, hi, everybody. Um, yeah, I'm Carol from the CPSU. I'm one of the senior consultants. Um, I guess the CPSU is a partnership. So it's a partnership between the NSPCC and the sports councils. Um, and we work with uh, all funded NGBs, national governing bodies. We work with active partnerships and we also work with the high high performance system partners. So we work with probably about 300 organisations and our role is very much about helping organisations to build the capacity to safeguard and protect children. Um, we're a small team, so we can't do it. It's about really helping sports to put in place what they need to put in place. So some of that, for example, it will be sort of, I guess, helping them to develop good, robust safeguarding policies and procedures. It's also helping to develop and deliver training, um, I guess, resources, guidance. Some of our work is also around lobbying. So you may have seen some of the lobbying working going on at the moment around position of trust so that sports coaches become like school teachers, social workers, they're embraced in that legislation around position of trust. So um, we do quite a lot of work. Um, within the unit, I specialise and sort of um, work very closely with the UK sport funded bodies. So the elite system partners, people like the EIS, British Paralympics, um, and, and those sort of organisations that have got a key role in the sort of high performance system. Um, and wearing another hat, I also am a member of the National Anti-Doping Panel. So, you know, you can't see these things in isolation. Doping can be, you know, safeguarding. So I guess it's it's keeping that sort of view of um, protecting children right from grassroots, right through to elite performance pathways. Um, I will say that in this new world of working, I have a co-worker who is in my office. I hope he's quiet because it's a 10-year-old border terrier. He often um, does come in on CPSU meetings, so I'll, I'll try and keep him quiet and I'll be ready to go with a mute button. That's me. <laughs> in terms of... Um, I know you sort of want to just comments on, on the athlete A. I mean, you know, sort of watch that and well, it's hard to express the feelings that you feel in watching it. But, you know, one of my first thoughts was it's often sort of highlighted as, as sexual abuse and it is sexual abuse. But along with sexual abuse comes lots of other forms of abuse. And there was emotional abuse, there was physical abuse. So it's, you know, for me, it was sort of seeing that that whole spectrum. And I know we'll get into sort of the comments of, of other thoughts and what people can do. So, yep, that, yeah, that's me. No, awesome, Carl, awesome. I'm sure you'll bring that depth and passion throughout the whole session. We'll definitely have picked on a couple of those already that we'll explore. Um, Kevin, if I can jump to you very briefly in your role. I know Carl's highlighted the specific area um, that they focus on. Where where do you work um, along the along that pathway or in the coaching space? Uh, similar to um, Carol, we are a small team uh, based in Derby, but our remit is to look at uh, raising awareness of how abuse occurs in sport at the grassroots level. So we work uh, collectively in partnership with our colleagues at the CPSU, but we're also sort of specialist advisors because our rule, it rule really is about uh, child sexual exploitation and criminal child criminal exploitation. So we look at the whole P 
picture, you know, Carol does a specialism as uh, different colleagues with different NGBs. But what we're trying to do is get really at the grassroots level, uh, below NGB level, the kids on the park, the kids playing cricket, the, the school team, the, you know, the local rugby team, so as, as well as the teams who really aren't maybe affiliated to national governing bodies. So we're sort of an outlet for them to sort of seek advice, support, and then we develop a lot of resources which are free to uh, pass by. And then if we get, you know, concerns, you know, we can pass them on if it's like a conduct issue to uh, the colleagues at the CPSU. But at the same time, we can give that critical advice and guidance about actually what exploitation is. And I think, as Carol says, when you look at athlete A, what we're seeing is the whole range of abuse from emotional abuse to physical abuse to sexual abuse, but also neglect because they neglected these children horrendously from start to finish. And there's no duty of care there at all. So it's our, our job sort of to, to focus really on the exploitation, how it happens, if it happens, what you need to do. And then also looking after care, because obviously, uh, in you know, I think if you watch the Larry Nasser, the girls went to court and they had a day in court and Lasser went off to do his 200 year jail stretch and then support stops. So we're there to advise about what people need to do long term, because you've looked at, you know, looked at Simone Biles, some of the quite young kids. But there's a lot of older athletes there. When I mean older athletes and athletes in the late twenties and maybe early thirties, uh, but who supports them afterwards, and how can we sort of help them to come to terms with what's happened to them? Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. You've brought something up there that makes me want to go to the the chat box momentarily before I come to you, Dave. Um, if that's okay, uh, I'd love to know from the people we have in the room today. Um, you know, what words or a sentence describe safeguarding for you? We're going to get into the nitty gritty of it today. We're going to go to the layers. You've, you've heard a snapshot from Carla and Kevin already. So if I could go to the chat box and we can pause for a couple of minutes from your own experience, be it in a, in a qualification, a workshop you've attended, or, you know, what, what words and what sentences come to you? Thanks to you for starting us off. all love of Bobby, awareness and awareness is such a key component and a key part we need to be aware of these things happening both at the high performance level but also at sort of the lower level where kids play for fun you know we've got yeah. to have the awareness it doesn't always happen at the top end uh the grassroots end rarely hits the media uh, the top end do hit the media because the media are only interested in the top people. Very interesting point, Kevin. If I could come to you, Dave, um, I guess you're working across all of the pathway and depth and breadth of experience. And as I said, an advocate of uh, child protection from a coaching angle and experience, what can we learn? Uh, what can coaches learn from the documentary? I think the key point for me, uh, Jenny, is around the coach setting the environment. And in many sports, although I'll accept not all sports, but in many sports, it, it is expected that the coach will set the environment within that group or that team or squad. And I think for me, what was clear was that there was a systematic approach where what I would call low level abuse was allowed to continue and the environment allowed that to be continued over a period of time. And that meant that when more serious abuse occurred and was reported, it meant that people were not taking the appropriate action because that environment of, of having a culture 
where people were able to feel it was okay to report concerns that they had was not established. And I think it's only fair to say that I really do believe that we have got things a lot better in the UK. And I think the work that's been done since safeguarding training was introduced in uh, in 1997 in this country really goes on to show that not just my own personal opinion here, but also if you look into things like uh, Operation Hydrant and the historical football abuse reports, you'll find that um, what was relatively low levels of abuse occurring in the UK actually then continued to accelerate the decline after the introduction of safeguarding training in, in the mid-90s. If I could, um, Carl, you were going to jump in there. Yeah, well spotted. <laughs> I mean, I guess one of the things I was going to, there was, there was two things around Athlete A that really jumped out for me. And the second one was what Dave was, was reframe. It's easy to see that it, you know, it's that head, top head stuff. That's I think that's described really as the different stages where you will be get the end. I think for some people they will break rules quite innocently and with good intention. So really, I guess what we're saying is just be aware of that slippery slope towards abuse because if you pick up early better place and this, in terms of organizations what we know from research is that organizations that have good boundaries and have rules and follow those rules are safer places for young people to be safeguarding that can be in all areas if Swimming club, but at the other times you need to somehow join a level of swimming run so that you're insured. Now the club is really strict on that, and you don't swim the fifth time. If you want to swim again, you join. And I think that's a good example of a club that follows its boundaries, makes it clear, and it will translate and hopefully pick up things along a slippery slope. So that if they see, you know, poor practice, whatever you want to call it, low-level concerns, they get picked up and they get acted on. Because all these sort of high-profile cases that we see, they really, they, they don't just become a high-profile case. There's often issues that have not been picked up lower down the line. And so that's where I think coaches are in a, a brilliant position to be able to see something early on. The hard bit, and, and I'll pass to Dave, because I know Dave, this, this is the hard bit really, is being a coach and seeing something that feels just a bit uncomfortable, but not massive. It's then, you know, being brave enough to say, you know, I'm going to do something about this. Uh, and actually, I said there was two things, didn't I, that jumped out. The other thing was that bit about um, everything you read in, in that report or so in that documentary. You know, children's experiences of anything, that, that centre where they were training, that was not child-focused, it was not athlete-focused. And I guess what we've got to do is make sure that children's voices get heard um, and their views, their experiences, they then get heard and influence what we're trying to do. And that environment that they were in, there was no athlete child focus views was it to the extent that you know you 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 went out and you performed and you landed on one leg with an injury a child focused um 
approach. So somehow we've got to get to the point where we listen to children right at the, you know, the early doors, right at the beginning, and that translates right through and influences decisions that get made. Uh, just before you jump in there, Dave, I really appreciate that, Carl. I'd love to strip it right back and, and open it to you, Dave, Kevin, or Carl, to jump in on it. You, you know, what do you think is so vitally important at the top of that list of having those policies and rules in place? Um, you know, like what would I you think say? It goes back to the, your very first question, Jenny, doesn't it? Is that what do we mean by safeguarding? And for me, safeguarding means what do we have in place to stop things going wrong in the first place? And if we can have those in place, we're going to minimise the risk of ever being in this situation. I think what we saw from athlete A was that those safeguards were not in place to begin with. And I think if if he said to me what was the most haunting part of the whole thing, it was when they were talking about some of the some of the, the women who were saying that quite simply, I didn't know that this wasn't normal. And we have to remember quite often here we're dealing with talented and elite, not adults not even always necessarily young adults, but often children. And they quite simply don't understand what maybe the boundaries are, not just in terms of what might be physical abuse or emotional abuse, but also around sexual things as we saw with the likes of what, what Larry Nasser was doing. And that for me is why it's so important to understand that we have to have these safeguards in place to begin with, because we're protecting a lot of children from things that essentially they don't know. And I think one of the most important things is to have the culture right at the very top. So if the good culture is right at the top, it will flow down through the ranks. And like with you both colleagues previously said, you know, you've got to have these safeguards in place. All well, most clubs now have got policies and procedures. But unless they're acted upon and, and used and followed to letter, they're just worthless pieces of paper which lie on the shelf. You've got to have the culture right. There's a really good colleague of ours, Lewis Gell, who was a former boxing coach. And he always said to me, Kev, if the head coach in the boxing club gets safeguarding, it filters way down and everybody's in it. If the head coach isn't interested, no one's interested. And that's the culture we try and get away from. And I think that's absolutely right and all about uh, we've got to educate kids about what is right and what is wrong. I watched Athlete A and his, um, his excuses for what he did uh, got quite quickly unraveled by the police officer being in, you know, in uh, interviewing her. Even though she wasn't a medical, she could work out that this wasn't right, and you could see his case and his defences on, you know, quite quickly unraveling him. So we do also have to be learning, teaching children about what's right, what's wrong. Where am I going to put my hand? What's the point of doing this? Why am I actually doing it? And uh, like I say, because these are children. Our children, the children to the age of eighteen, and some, you know. They're, you know, they just go to school, they go to club, they go to school, they go to club. They're not worldly. Some of them are worldly and they don't know what sexual abuse actually is. And it's a subject to cover, but it's one we must start talking about in our clubs. I think the filtering part there is uh, a couple of people have mentioned in the chat box about boundaries and rules and regulations and living them. And, and as you said, Kevin, the filtering down, the, the being an advocate for a, a role model in that space and not just saying, um, designated officer um, and, and, and that's their job to do that. Um, it's a really important point. Um, you spoke to me last week about bystanders. Can you dive into that for me a little bit, please? When you look at where the, uh, you know, athlete A was, there was, there must have been lots and lots of different coaches, different conditioning coaches, different adults around there and they all saw everything, yet no one did anything about it. And I cannot believe 
that people there weren't feeling comfortable or comfortable with what they were seeing and what they were hearing. And particularly when athletes were made to train with injuries, a good medical person would know that's the wrong thing to do. So we have to be looking at what a bystander's doing. And we all have to be active bystanders. And we've been doing some work with uh, Dr. Rachel Fenton from Exeter University about the bystander initiative, which is getting people, particularly universities and, and sports clubs, to actually intervene at the earliest option, early potential moment to nip things in the bud. Because we could have coaches who are just well-meaning but doing things the wrong way. And sometimes they just need stopping and saying, that's not appropriate, this is how you need to do it. And then there's others who are abusive, who just need stopping and challenging. I remember uh, talking to Gloria Visserus. Gloria was a Olympic gymnast from 1982. She was voiced part of the Voices for Truth and Dignity project. And she was telling us about um, two people from the national governing body walking through the arena at the time. And their head coach was a very dominant, very powerful, very abusive head coach. And she heard one of them say, I don't particularly like the way he shouts at the coaches where the other one says he gets medals, and that was the end of it. Yet if the other person had actually been a bit more uh, stronger and more vocal, you could actually challenge the head coach. So it's about everybody who's watching it, policing everybody else, and you know, reminding people of what the boundaries are, what's right, what's not right, uh, what's professional, what's unprofessional, and being allowed to say it. So we have to have the open culture where people are allowed to critique training methods, because don't they? we don't all get it right. And that's me from a non-sports person. But <laughs> we don't all get it right. And sometimes you just need telling. And then other times you need to be firm about the slippy slide, you know, like what Carol spoke right at the beginning. When you're on that slope, it's very hard to stop the momentum traveling all the way down. So we need the bystanders to start being active bystanders and active participants. And not like some of the football mums and dads on the side who scream, shout and fight watching the children's matches or just being professional and saying, I don't think that's absolutely right. Well, re children rely on adults to look after them and they want adults to look after them. And clearly in athlete A, all the adults failed them miserably. Okay, thanks Karen for that. Um, Carl, can I jump to you if, if it's okay on this? And I'm sure you have some, some thoughts flowing after that uh, great insight from Kev. Um, there's a couple of comments here that I've made here around um, language that's used and um, ideology uh, kind of uh, ideology around success and shaping kind of that um, progress for your child as a parent uh, what kind of advice and structures and, and stuff can we put in place for coaches and their coaching team or coaching environment yeah my, my head was so I was making lots of notes as Kev was was talking really because I think you know there's a big thing about strong governance and leadership at the top because Kev was talking about culture wasn't he and and to me I guess an organization's culture will affect the way people act so I guess you know human performance the way we work at work whatever will will depend on the sort of culture we're, we're within and so things like codes of conduct are really really important and often people just think oh you know there's a the club's got a parent's code of conduct they've got a club a coach's code of conduct you know it's not that but actually they're key bits of I guess um, information sort of making it clear what's accepted and not what's not accepted and equally what happens if you don't follow that code of conduct so to me those codes of conducts that really help to make sure a culture is is 
you know, a, a culture where young people are welcomed and where they're safe are really important bits of documents. And I think it's those things that make policies and procedures come to light. And that's why I was scribbling down when Kev said quite rightly, you know, to having those robust policies and procedures in place, but it has to be a lot more of than that. It can't just be policies and procedures because often we hear people say, oh, we've got great you know, policy, we've got a great procedure. You know, so what that could be on a shelf somewhere. It's the things that make these things come to life. And the code of conduct is is one of those things. And it's really important when we're reviewing things, we look at a code of conduct, we see different codes of conduct and equally, ideally that they've been developed by people who are using them so that the people are bought into them and they understand them. So I think that was a really important thing for me. There was something else I wrote down and I can't remember now about, I think it was about that normalization that Kev mm -hmm. talked about, you know, it's sort of things becoming normal. And it, it is often when people are in a culture or in a place, it absolutely feels normal. And it's not for the young person to say, this isn't normal because they, they, they may not recognise that. So it's for those people around it. It's for the coaches. It's for the club welfare officers, those those club people or whatever level it is, if it's in a, in a high performance system and bystanders or peers, as Kev said, you know, are really key people to that. And I was listening to I think it's Nancy um, Hogshead Maker, who was a, an Olympic swimmer in, in the US, and she talked about moving coaches and moving to California to be with a new coach. And she was she thought, I'll be OK because I'm, I'm 25, so I'm actually too old for him now because he's got a reputation. And you sort of think what, you know, that that, that whole environment can't be a place where those swimmers could speak out and say, I don't feel comfortable, I don't feel happy. They, they had to sort of keep themselves safe. And it shouldn't be the athlete keeping themselves safe. It needs to be the, the systems around them keeping themselves. So I think absolutely, you know, peers have, have a role to play, but it is a really complicated one because often within a, a culture, it's hard for those people who are in that, that, that environment to be able to speak out. So they might see something and it can have an impact on them, the fact that they see something and feel unable to do something about it. So there will be people who will say, I knew something was happening, but I couldn't say anything. And so it's, it is, it's a really, it, it's an important point. Peers have a role, but I think without a culture of listening to athletes, listening to young people, you know, it, it's a real challenge to get to that point where they feel they can speak out easily. Can yeah, I just pick was... up on that point, Carol? Yeah, yeah of course. I think there's something really what you said there specifically around um around almost protecting the young people and that it's the system that needs to protect it more than peers and i know somebody's put in the chat box i think uh, nick has put in the chat box around um uk sport a philosophy around medals and more and should it maybe be more the medals approach to be honest and this might be slightly controversial but there's no point me just coming on these things and just towing a line is there? but quite simply i think that quite often that the medals and we talk a lot about and medals at all cost. I think that can actually be a bit of a distraction when we get onto that. Because one thing I will tell you is there is nobody that wants to win the medals more than the athletes, more than the sports people themselves. So actually, I think we we sometimes forget that when we get a little bit older, perhaps, and we move away from from being a sports person ourselves. Is they want they want the medals more than anything. So sometimes it's actually around protecting the athletes themselves from how much they want the medal. And I think that is where some of the problems lie in that it's been somebody has allowed something to happen to them because they feel that if they didn't do so, then they will be deselected 
or they thought that that was normal because that's what you must have to do, therefore, if you want to make it to elite level. So that, I think, really builds on what Carol was saying about the system and the people within that have to really protect the athletes themselves. Yeah, and say if I stay with you, Dave, for a second, we had a, a player special a couple of, uh, well, as last Monday, actually, now already, and things like trust, um, safety, relationships, the, that coach-athlete relationship was brought to the forefront by every athlete, like that building uh, building of trust. Like, how how do you get to, from a coaching perspective, that space um, where you are having open dialogue with your athletes and then how could you build that with your coaching team if it is an assistant or a volunteer that comes in how can coaches who are in the in the space today go from here if it isn't in place to getting to that stage of having normalized behavior regular conversations etc quite simple it's, it's honesty and openness we, we think of that as being the relationships aspect of the coach's code of practice that we've been talking about already and if you allow people to be able to to really voice their opinion, and look, everyone is very different. I've got some athletes that will that will not tell you at all if maybe they've started their period or something like that. I've got another athlete that I can think of that she swans into the building, and the first thing she tells everyone is that uh, that's that's her time of the month, and you know she lets everybody know, and that's just how it is. And it's much easier, of course, to deal with that situation for me as a coach because they're coming and being really honest and open with me. But really, it's a case of, um, you know, my, my wife will quite honestly tell you that um, I've got no um, observational skills or uh, any attentiveness whatsoever. But somehow I feel that when I'm coaching, I may be able to switch that on. <laughs> and I think we have to uh, we have to be able to do that as coaches, just to be able to sometimes take a little step back and just smell when something isn't quite right and something just doesn't quite feel right, because your gut instinct usually is pretty true. And I'm not going to, you know, um, beat around the bush. There's been instances where I haven't gone with my gut instinct and I, I regret it because I feel like I could have picked up a problem a lot sooner than perhaps I, perhaps I had in the past. The the real challenge with all of this is it goes back if we, sorry to keep saying this person's name, but when we think about Larry Nasser, again, one of the really terrifying parts of that documentary was when they uh, athletes themselves talked about how he was the only nice adult on the team. They looked forward to being with him because he was a nice person. He was the only being, one being nice with them. And that really is the problem, isn't it? Unfortunately, one of the best things that these, these abusers or groomers are able to do is, is act really normal in plain sight in front of everyone. And that's why being observant and, and, and keeping tabs on things and following the policies are so important because very quickly they will learn that if isn't being followed through and that isn't being followed through then that gives them the loopholes and the gaps that they need to get access to athletes to abuse them can i just jump in jen with a quick note because um I, I was just sort of tracking the, the the question the chat box and there was a question in there i think it's from allison and it was a question that i sort of wanted to ask dave and it, it's around sort of like i guess junior coaches sort of working their way up to the sort of senior coach level and almost those that role model coach type thing because one of the things i heard uh, misha jervis who's done a lot of research at brunel university around the elite athlete welfare and and she was a coach herself and she, she often talks about sort of i guess that you know, when you're a young coach, you're looking up to those other coaches. And if, if that culture or that, you know, where they're working isn't great, how how do you, you know, what do you do, Dave, like that when you see something and 
you know, it's a coach senior to you. And I think that's a question Alison was trying to ask. She said, I'm now a senior coach, but as a junior coach, I was learning from my seniors. So I might have been, you know, scared to, to question their methods and I'm able to speak up now, but in those yeah. early days. So is there any tips, any anything that you're oh, thinking? I've been, there, been there myself, Carol. I know that when I moved from being a grassroots coach, moving to more of a talent and elite environment, being surrounded by coaches that you know you'd seen on TV that were household names that you looked up to, uh, some of the things that I maybe used to do in a, in a club environment, in a grassroots environment, I, I just stopped doing because nobody else was doing them. So I felt like I was childish or not a, not a proper coach, not a not a high level coach if I was doing some of those things. So I, I just stopped doing them. And it wasn't until I eventually, a few years later, got the confidence myself to realize. Oh no, do you know what? You were a pretty good coach in the first place. That's what got you here in the first place. You don't need to abandon everything you've done. Um, and I've brought many of those things back in because now I don't really care what people think of me in that regard, because uh, I guess not really setting the right environment. And do you know what? Um, what made you good in the first place as a coach is probably what got you there. So I would say to all of those, those coaches, have the confidence. And do you know what? You might be doing exactly the right thing by going up to somebody and suggesting to do this or to do that. One thing I've always said is that uh, it's very, very easy to set a session for kids based on what adults do and it not be very successful at all. But what tends to work well for kids tends to work really well for adults as well because they, by their very nature, sports people are competitive and have fun. But just to really um, go even further on the point, just to pick up on something that Kev said around trying to set the environment and around um, that that win-at-all-costs culture and the fact that some people will turn around and say, oh, well, that coach gets results. So it's fine if they just do that. We don't mind if they're abusive. We might, we'll, we'll let them crack on and do their own thing because they get results. But my question really is, well, in that particular environment, is it really their behaviours that get results? Or is it just because, because they might be the national coach or <clears throat> whatever it may be, they are the person who tends to get the most talented people in the first place? could indeed their results be far, far better if they've created a really positive environment. And if there's one thing I do tend to find is that, uh, and this is slightly anecdotal, but when I've seen athletes that have been coached in what I would call a, you know, a, a non-optimal environment in terms of that, that coach-athlete relationship, I do feel that they often do struggle under pressure, particularly if they've been in a situation where they've been played off against other, other people to perform because you would never then feel that the coach has got your back. You always feel like, oh, that said, that said. And that for me is, is something we do need to get away from. I think if we do have a really positive environment, you will get better results. And until we accept that and move on beyond that, we will still have people that say, oh, that coach gets results, so it's fine. We'll just let them crack on. Yes. So true, Dave. You know, we've really got to get out of this uh, no pain, no gain mentality and my way or the highway because that's what crushes kids and it doesn't actually work. And like you said, Dave, you know, if you're good enough, you're good enough. And just the nurturing will help you early on. But just to go back to the gut instincts, uh, you know, the, the Larry Nasser, we really have to start trusting our gut instincts. You know, we've been working in the field of child exploitation now for years and years. And we say to professionals, trust your gut instincts. And I've got a great video, which I'll send you if you want to share around the network, uh, about Stephen Porter's polyvagal theory, because your brain is actually attached to your heart and actually got through the nervous system. And if your gut instincts is going, you know something's not right, and it's a scientifically proven method. 
So I'll share that with you so you can send it around the network. It's half an hour video, but it's worth watching because if people trust our goodness and do the right thing at the right time, we're going to stop these things in the track and stop them early and give corrective advice or get the person out of the sport. But we have to start doing that better. I think what links the last three comments together for me definitely here is, is that support network. So athletes been at the centre of it and everybody around and then those people intertwined and sharing openly, whether it is through the language or the policies that are in place. But, you know, flipping back the parents, I've had many, we've had actually a, a Curious Coaches Club with both uh, Gordon and Richard here where we spoke about the amount of work that's being done to support parents and their willingness to get involved once they understand. So I, I guess having insight from a UK coaching perspective, we're always talking about what great coaching looks like. Um, so all of this coming together with the athlete at the centre, Tani Gray said it, Tani Gray Thompson said it in her duty to care report, people being at the heart. Um, and whether the, it's the participants, the volunteers, the coaching um, paid employees in that space, just having an openness where people can communicate and normalising that behaviour. Um, if I was to, if we were to go back to, say, the, the, the duty to care side of things, Carl, if I could come to you, like what are some of the other things that coaches can do linked to duty to care um, of the people that they're working with? I mean, one of the things I was just reading, I think uh, Alison had written about sort of um, in the first month of training, um, junior players getting parents in and talking to them. And I think a lot of it is is that, you know, setting that ground early, those boundaries. And I think talking to parents early on, you know, explaining what you're doing, why you're doing it and how it's happening and whether that's, you know, somebody in the it could be also the club welfare officer at elite level. It's often the lead, the governing body's lead safeguarding officer going into the performance squad. But just actually talking to parents and, and letting them know how things work. Because the, what we saw in Athlete A was an extreme example where parents were actually completely shut out. And and that, that sounds extreme, but we know there are sports sometimes now that really struggle to, to, to let parents in to some of the sessions. And so there needs to be that open communication with parents as to... You know what to expect, and and if they if they're not happy with something, that they can they can speak because you know parents are going to protect children, so they need to be involved. And I think for me that that sort of that description about you know um, that first month, Alison saying I stress my interest is in their best interest, so I chat them about them, you know about the what else they're doing. It's not just about sport. And I think it's that induction, whether you're inducting them into a world-class programme or you're inducting them into a club, it's sort of having that opportunity to talk and, and to to involve the children, involve the parents in what, what they're going to experience. Absolutely. Brilliant. I don't know answer the question, actually, because I think you oh, might have been a different question. Lovely. I had um, a question for Dave, but Kevin, you were going to jump in on the back of that, were you? Uh, involving parents, we, we have a, a new campaign called Safe to Play, which we use in augmented reality and we're partnership with the Lawn Tennis Association. And it's all aimed about parents, about getting parents to have the confidence to go to sport and become involved. And also, if you're unsure about something, have the confidence to go to the head coach or the governing body or the committee and say, look, I'm just not happy about what's going on there. Because Simpson did uh, some research there last year and they looked at thousands of parents and they asked them about their experiences. And some of the parents said, well, we weren't happy about the responses. The coaches weren't interested. The committees weren't interested. So we left. So the child leaves the club, but the behaviour stays at the club. And that's where we need to get more parents to be more sort of belligerent and say, now I want this dealing with. 
uh, and get them involved because when they're involved, it's a bigger club. It's a bigger club. It's a better club, and it's better for everybody because there's more support for the whole sports community. Sorry, Jen. I was going to say as well, Kev, um, some of the resources, we've we've got a lot of resources for parents on our website and we've got a poster, I've just grabbed it about, you know, encouraging parents to ask how safe um, your child's sports activities are. And I guess as a coach to promote any of that sort of resource and uh, within a club or within your coaching environment is really helpful. So I'll send a link at the end to our pages on parents in sport. Fabulous, absolutely. I'll reference kind of we've got a, a bank of stuff and threads to both of your sites at the moment going. So I'll mention that at the end. Um, but Dave, if I could come to you briefly, speaking about, um, I guess for me, it's uh, I'm picking up a couple of the different statements and questions here in the chat box. And, you know, very valid when people say, well, when you're you're under push to the pin of your collar in performance and the eyes are on you as a coach, um, and, and the athletes, obviously, but to perform, um, you have athletes who are appearing um, gold at Olympics, top top tier, top um, GB and international. How how do you keep that balance um, and your eye on, on everything that you're doing as well as the positive reinforcement and uh, positive environment and culture that you're growing? It's, it's really tough, I'm not going to lie. One of the things that I'd love to say is that, oh, I'll just treat everybody the same. <clears throat> but the truth is, I, I don't. And I've certainly heard stories from other, um, you know, high level coaches. I remember there's a story about um, Alex Ferguson with Cantona. I think that uh, some of the players came in and said, hold up, we all have to turn up wearing our smart things before training. He turns up in jeans and a t-shirt. What, what's going on? And the manager said, listen, his job is to win us matches. You just leave me coaching him to me. Off you go. And that was it. The man, the, uh, the captain got sent away. And do you know what? I do have uh, different approaches to different athletes. That's because each person is an individual. What one person needs is completely different to what the other person needs. I remember just last week, I, I said to one of my athletes, I, I literally said, right, be quiet now and just listen to this one word. Now, if I was taking one of my coach assessments at the time, somebody might well have turned around to me and said, right, that's a fail because that's not how you coach. But it was what that particular athlete really needed because she struggles to take in lots of words and lots of information. And her friends were trying to give her advice, trying to help her, try and explain things in their own words. But all she really needed was just one word. Whereas there's other athletes who are so intelligent that uh, uh, she said, uh, you know, I, I make a joke with them that, uh, you know, she can read uh, and understand binary code and things like that. So imagine being that intelligent. Well, she so easily can overthink things. So again, I've got to have a different approach for her. I've got other athletes who maybe only want to uh, be told exactly what to do. They hate being coached, as I would call it, to come up with the correct answer themselves. So unfortunately, as much as I'd love to say I'm treating everybody the same, I'm not. But what I'm trying to do is create the same environment environment for everyone rather than think about coaching everybody the same. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and leading on then to what we've previously mentioned and people will, will be aware of that psychologically safe environment and that mm -hmm. open a community of reciprocal kind of conversation that happens, which can extend to your coaching team and the regular meetings you might have uh, to the to the committee or the community where you might have interactions with them. Um, and that transparency is there. And I guess that's one of the things for me from a, a takeaway from Matthew Day was, wow, what courage and bravery it took for those women to speak out and the support of holding them up when when they needed to at that point to, to continue to tell the story and stand by it. Um, so I think that's linking kind of a lot of things as we come to 
three o'clock mark already before I get you to, to kind of go to your key messages. Um, really, really interesting to look at the athlete at the centre, the coaches being informed. So if it is the, the uh, duty to care toolkit and, and the digital badge that we've, we've launched today, that there's a load of different uh, knowledge checks and sense checks that people can do their learning through that and understand kind of where is where's my understanding on on inclusive diverse uh, safeguarding uh, well-being and mental health and what do i need to do next yeah. and then having the support and check and challenge in the environment yeah. which you said dave um from you know a live coaching perspective in a performance tier and in a university capacity of people engaging in sport for the first time or or on a, a less experienced level it's very hard very hard mm-hmm. to do that um if i could jump to you uh carl the key message that, that um, you would like to land yeah. today. Yeah. What could, what can, I, that? can I just say one thing before I say the key message? Oh, absolutely. It, when you yeah. started on the last bit you were talking about, that was one of the things I was just thinking about, that safeguarding individuals, because we, we recognise that, that some athletes, some young people will have additional vulnerabilities. And just thinking of the situation we're in at the moment, just thinking, you know, from children and young people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds, we know have shown a sort of greater increases in depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicidal thoughts during this period. And parents with children and young people, disabled young people, will report that the mental health of their young people has worsened during this time. So safeguarding children isn't a blanket. They're not all the same. And I guess it's looking at that um, for some athletes, they may be additionally vulnerable and need additional safeguards around them. And what the research shows is that elite athletes are in that group of being additionally vulnerable for lots of different, I can do a whole webinar on the vulnerabilities and the reasons for that. But there are groups that are additionally vulnerable. So I guess it's just recognising, you know, children on a group, they're 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 different, and will come with different uh, uh, vulnerabilities. But I guess in terms of sort of final messages, I guess for me, sports coaches are just in a, a privileged position, I guess, to help change the future and um, and the future outcomes for young people. So things like just, just listening to young people and thinking, how can you promote young people's voices being heard? Um, and and how can you collaborate with them and hear their opinions it is really important and I think you know just that being able to empower young people and to hear them is really important and I think you know sports coaches have a unique position to do that and in this current environment where we're sort of talking about return to sport at different levels for some people for some young people they're returning from a home that hasn't been safe and isn't safe and so sports coaches can be that first point of contact so to me it's that message you know that the coaches are in just a privileged position to be able to help young people Vitally important uh, point, Carl, especially in the, in the nature of how the five months has um, has changed and been in a really uncertain, unstable environment for some people. And the coaches that I work with in the performance pathway, we've spoken openly about, uh, we've called them lockdown debriefs, um, where coaches have seen that, yeah, I've kind of been in contact maybe through a Zoom, but actually the relationships between the athletes, they've changed and the relationship um, between you and your athletes and the environment that they're in. So where it may be perceived to be a normal um, re-engagement, if you like, with a five-month chunk taken out, we're now in a spot where we have to kind of go back to basics and really check and ask if it is an individual basis or a group if it's an invasion sport of how are you doing, what's going on? Let's share some experiences of what's happened. And um, Karen, they just put a yeah. fabulous remembering human beings with the heart and feelings first. 
and thenceforth yeah. uh, on top of it. So appreciate that, Carl. And I think one of the last things I would say, and, and it is somebody else's word, is it's listen to understand, not listen, you know, don't listen to hear to answer somebody but actually listen to them to understand what's going on and I think if you can go back into that environment and really listen to young people that's one of the best things you can possibly do. Yeah and the, and the hope is then that we are as Marietta said they're creating a safer space um, for people then to be able to stand up and say if there is one or two people saying I'm not too sure about that that they know who to go to where it is um, and what those feelings like you said Kevin with the gut feeling it doesn't feel right but they're not going uh, from a session home with that festering in their head they have somebody in an avenue to go and to wave a flag and to to support um, the next step Kevin if I could come to you on a key message from all again Sinojkar the depth and breadth of experience clearly the, the child's voice we've seen in exploitation over the years the child's voice doesn't get heard the child's doesn't voice gets heard the abuse continues so echo exactly what Carol said there about the child's voice being heard but also about bystanders and you know if you're seeing something and you report it and nothing happens, you need to escalate it. Because what we do see in children's services is you pass something on to social care. And bearing in mind what Carol just said about children are returning to sport before school. So sports coaches will be in a predicament of lots of kids coming back with all sorts of, you know, grizzly tales and maybe not even disclosing, but the behaviour is telling us something. So if coaches do report in, they need to go back a couple of days later, seven days later to say, and what's happening? Because things get left. <laughs> and what we are going to see is a deluge of referrals in September when schools return. But in between that, coaches are the key points. And like you said, they are in an unbelievable situation because kids need to get out and run about. But also they might be people saying, this happened to me, that happened to me. But also look at the child's behaviour because rarely do we get children telling. Look at athlete A, none of them told until what you know later on in life and we need to get to a position where coaches are tuned in to children's behavior and their own behavior and looking at it and passing it on and the bystanders you know we've got to get the bystanders more effective and actually doing the right thing and last thing uh, support for coaches you know we've been in dealing with difficult situations for years now so me and my colleagues at nwg we talk about abuse every day um, it just rolls off the tongue because that's our chosen profession who supports the coaches when they make that phone call? That's a really important thing because you make the phone call, you're starting off a potential long investigation. Who then supports the coach at seven o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night, midday, Sunday afternoon, when they're thinking about it? Because what they won't be doing is when the when the coaching thinking about it, it's when they go home and they get the rumination going off in the brains. So who's supporting the coaches? Because that's really, really important. Uh, and if I could link that point really quickly to you, Dave. Um, great points again, uh, Kevin. Thank you, Dave. So, who supports you, Dave? Um, to this day, even now, revenge is my, my biggest fear that somebody is going to try and get back at me for protecting athletes. And you know, it can and it has happened. And it is my absolute biggest fear. And uh, in many ways, it, it kind of keeps me up at night sometimes. Uh, but unfortunately, it's one of those things when you sign up to be a coach, you're essentially saying that somebody might come to you one day and, and tell you that somebody's tried to hurt them in the past. And those are inherently not going to be good people. And when they can't get at the athletes, the truth is quite often they, they do come at other people involved in that process. And it, that does happen. Um, so for me, um, I've been fantastic that I've, I've had employers that have, have known and understood that and, and been able to support me 
through that process. Um, but it's so essential really for coaches to, to be able to do that. Definitely one thing that's really good. I mean, I'm, I know I'm on a UK coaching webinar here, but without giving a shameless plug, when you have UK coaching insurance, one of the things you'll also have within that is a, is a helpline around support packages. Um, and that's something that I have as a as a UK coaching member that's got that insurance for my own coaching. And they've also as well got a um, like a, abuse support and all those kind of things as well for coaches if they are in that situation. So well worth knowing about that. Uh, brilliant, Dave. I really appreciate that. I think it's um, I mean some some gems there um, coming through, and obviously looking in the chat box here, Bean has made a really good point. The more we learn and understand um, about discovery and disclosure, and and feel comfortable. Um, as as comfortably uncomfortable when when we do have that information come in to know the avenues of support. There's a, a connected coaches thread that has been started on the UK coaching website that has, if anything from today, any concerns have come to the forefront in the back of today is a list of numbers and contacts. And obviously Carl and Kevin, CPU and NGW, uh, they're in there. Um, and we can uh, NWG rather, sorry, um, we can have that space for people to gain more information and feel supported. And as obviously my my sole role as a coach developer, um, that is something that I, I don't um I don't close um I, I'm not blinkered towards. It's very open to have those discussions and then signpost wherever I can to coaches so they feel supported and they're extending that network. Um Dave, if you had a, a takeaway point for people today, um what would you like that to be? Probably just to finish off from me by saying that probably my biggest mistake was not doing what I'm about to say now. So always remember, don't judge other people by your values. It's really important. One of the biggest mistakes I ever made was believing that something wasn't possible because in my head, a coach wouldn't do that. And because of that, it took another nine months for the right things to be done. So never judge other people by your values make sure that you're going with your gut feeling yeah absolutely fantastic point um and, and karen's made another great point here as i'm skimming over please engage more with people with lived experiences of abuse in sport um it may be daunting um it may you may not have um maybe a familiarity with people and we can all connect and share stories and, and create a space for people to share um, so that we can become more familiar with that experience. And, and again, Dave and, and Kevin and Carl, I can open it to you. How would people spot if something was happening there's uh, happening um, in their environment? Yeah, what I have to be better at is looking at children's behaviour uh, because not many children actually disclose abuse. And we know that from years and years of working in the field of child sexual exploitation, children rarely go up to someone and say, this has happened to me. It's the behaviour which we need to be looking at quite acutely. And you need to understand when the child is naturally down, or maybe like Dave said, you know, when they might be going through the time of the month and times are hard, or exams are on the go, or we're going through this period of COVID where there's a natural level of stress we're all feeling. But we have to be more in tune into a child's individual child's behaviour and how they are presenting. Then think back months maybe to a time when they weren't presenting and thinking, what is the difference here? What, because what there will be will be subtle differences. You know, you may not see them, but if you do see them, it's acting upon them and, you know, doing something about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, was, 
Sorry, Carl, Sorry, just yeah. be aware that in, in that process, when you do identify mm -hmm. um, that you know where those signposts are to pass that information on, that you're not taking that on yourself. Yeah. Sorry, Carl, I cut across you there. No, I was just picking up on exactly what I was going to say, what Kevin was going to say about the subtle sort of patterns of behaviour, picking up those, whether it's the child or the, 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 the sort of perpetrator and, and just what Karen had come in and, and, and put in the chat box around lived experience, that brings a, such a unique understanding. And I think, you know, I, I know that you, when we're talking about patterns of behaviour, there's often an image of what somebody might look like who's um, going to sexually abuse or somebody who's going to, and so you have this picture of your head and the, and the press don't help it by talking about monsters and, you know, but actually these are people who walk amongst us. You you, you see them. And, and I think if we start to put terms like that on them actually it means that they don't appear as somebody who is just there working amongst us and in society so i guess it's that bit of um spotting those sort of subtle patterns of behavior and if you see those poor practice those subtle things those things that might appear small breaking small rules starting that slippery slope then then report it in and there are lots of ways you might report it and dave talked about support and obviously the cpsu is one of those um for governing bodies on our website there's a link to a lead safeguarding officer but we have a duty system so people can email ring in the cpsu and not with urgent urgent concerns they need to go elsewhere but if it's just a little bit of advice that can come into the cpsu's duty inbox and we will answer questions and get back to people Fabulous. And as I mentioned earlier in the Connected Coaches, the, the website links for Kevin Carl, um, for NWD, CPSU and UK Coaching, our new digital badge. Um, I, I couldn't encourage you enough. I've, I've got my digital badge there uh, yesterday <clears throat> and going through some of those knowledge texts. They were a challenge and I'm exposed to it on a daily basis around mental health, well-being, safeguarding, inclusion and diversity. Um, but a, a fantastic facility and I hope today with the, the depth and breadth um, of, of knowledge and passion that you bring around the topic, uh, people can go away today thinking, well, what environment am I creating? Um, where's my knowledge base at? Um, how people-centered am I in my coaching? What's, what's detracting? What's swaying me and pulling me over here around performance? Where those pressures coming from? Who, who are my support network? Um, I am focused on the athlete. Um, who, who's my support network? And I'm aware that the duty to care is there and all these different pillars, um, but you're empowering young people to speak out. And is that space that you're creating, is that environment and culture you're creating a space where they can speak out to multiple people? And are parents aware um, in, their, in their best ability and support to guide? And is, if it is a camp or it's a regular weekly session, do they know where they can go and do those people know when they receive information where to sample? So I hope it was as, as thought provoking for you um, attendees here today as it was. I've had the privilege of two interactions with these three amazing people, amazing guests. Um, and I would say to, to uh, definitely go to Connected Coaches and check out the websites and, and see the amazing stuff. Kevin, you mentioned there um, about the augmented reality card. Um, yeah. I can't wait post covered for that to kick off or as we transition back to return to play for that to kick off as well. So, um, yeah, all I can say is thank you so much. Uh, thanks to everyone for attending today on this topic. Um, it was a harrowing watch, but it's definitely brought some of this to the forefront. Um, and uh, Carl, uh, Dave and Kevin, thank you so much for your time last week and today and for sharing everything with us. Pleasure. Thank you. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, 
We can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.